0: Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation from July 22, 2021.
1: We hope you enjoy the show. And uh, welcome everyone to Tibet Talks. Thank Gyatso of International Campaign for Tibet. I'm pleased to be your host today. Today we have two special guests joining us to discuss a new uh, book called Tibet Brief 2020 that is based on 10 years of collaborative research, analysis, and engagement with scholars of Chinese, Mongolian, Tibetan, and Manchu historical sources. It presents an extensive, in-depth examination of Tibet's historical relations with dominant empires in the region, This remains important because the People's Republic of China bases its claims on Tibet solely on an allegation that Tibet has been an integral part of China since antiquity. Our guest speaker today is an international lawyer, a mediator, an advisor in intrastate peace processes, and a professor of international law and international relations. He specializes in interstate conflict resolution. He served as a UN senior legal advisor to the foreign minister of East Timor during the country's transition to independence, and also as legal advisor to the Central Tibetan Administration and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In 2020, he was knighted in the Netherlands with the rank of commander in the order of the House of Orange Nassau for his exceptional service to society with a global impact. He has a number of publications sacred mandates the status of tibet history rights and prospects in international law and of course the topic of today's discussion tibet brief 2020 co-authored with mik uh, bolches please join me to welcome uh, michael michael welcome thank you for joining us
0: thank you very much tenshila
1: thank you and joining us today to lead the conversation with Michael is our, our second guest, an ICT board member and Asia expert. She is currently President uh, Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. She writes frequently and is a contributing editor at American Purpose. Her writings have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and other publications. Previously, she has worked in the US Senate, in the Department of State, and a Think Tanks and Human Rights Organization. My pleasure to welcome also Ellen Bork. Ellen, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you very much, Tencho. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um I'm so pleased to be part of one of these talks that I've been following for a while and I know have been really a source of great interest to people, especially during the pandemic. Um and Michael is an old friend whose work has informed my own thinking and writing on Tibet. Um, So I'm delighted to be able to engage in this discussion about this new book. Um, Michael's work is really extraordinary for bringing history into the the present and into all the things that we're trying to do on behalf of Tibet. Um, So um, actually in case, I don't know if anyone's seen it yet, this is the book um, that Michael and Amik have published. Um, I will uh, engage in uh, some discussion with Michael,
1: and then I know we'll come back to you for moderating the question and answer period. Yes, and just for the viewers watching, uh, we'll be taking the questions at the end of the uh, conversation with Ellen and uh, Michael. So please post questions on our Facebook Live post, or you can also email them to comments at savetibet.org. Okay, so I'll turn it over to Ellen. Thank you. Thank you
2: so much. Um
1: Michael, um this
2: book the the cover is very striking. Uh the title really says something. Would you mind telling us how you came to choose the title and what it what it should tell the reader about what you're trying to achieve with the book? Uh
0: thank you. Ellen. It's great to see you and to have this conversation with you. Uh it's a wonderful wonderful opportunity also to explain something about uh, about this book and what what it can do and and why we have it. Um, Well, the book is is a brief or an information on the international legal status of Tibet and what that means for the international community. Uh, 2020 in the title um, refers to visual acuity, 2020 vision, the ability to see clearly. That's why for the cover of the book, we also chose uh, the eye chart that optometrists use with the words rights, legal status, um, history, state responsibility, sovereignty, and legitimacy, because that's what the book is about. It's also what the Sino-Tibetan conflict is about. And and that's become difficult, I think, for for many people to see. In other words, the crux of the conflict is no longer sharply in focus for many people. PRC is actively and forcefully maintaining a smokescreen. Our memory of important events is fading and being replaced by Beijing's narrative on Tibet. And the terminology now commonly used to refer to Tibet, uh, both by governments and in the press and elsewhere, um, is conditioning us to lose sight of the truth. And all of this to the detriment of a resolution of the Sino-Tibetan conflict. Um, and, of course, our, our, our book aims to address this. Um, as Tenshala said, the book is an outcome of a project by Creda, a conflict resolution that, that I had, which mediates and facilitates in peace processes around the world. And we've seen again and again in that work that if the true nature of a conflict is not understood or is not addressed, chances of resolving it are minimal. That's why we wrote the book.
2: Can you go back sort of a little bit not to the beginning uh so so far to the beginning, but to this conflict, how it came about, and give us some examples of things that have become distorted um, uh, and I know later you'll talk about um, how how China has helped to distort them, but give us please some examples of things that people really don't understand or see clearly
0: uh, yes, um, people disremember uh, most fundamentally that the PRC took Tibet by force 70 years ago, uh, when Tibet was independent. Um, the international community has lost sight of the fact that the Sino-Tibetan conflict is is an international conflict, that Tibet's an occupied country, and that that this comes with international obligations and responsibilities on the part of our governments. And I believe many have lost sight of that. You know, we ask our governments to address human rights abuses in Tibet. And we don't see that raising human rights concerns without addressing the underlying conflict in its political and international legal dimensions strongly signals an acceptance of China's representation of Tibet as its internal affair. So, so yeah, people's vision has become blurry when it comes to the question whether the PRC has sovereignty over Tibet or not or whether the PRC has legitimacy to rule Tibet. People are just not sure anymore. They've been sufficiently confused by Beijing's false propaganda narrative that claims that Tibet was always a part of China or since antiquity. So how could the PRC then have invaded Tibet if it already belonged to China, people ask? And people are unaware um, that they're now using the language that Beijing prescribes for us and uh, the strategy of the PRC when they talk about Tibet. So you have to see that they've, in a sense, fallen victim to and are helping implement Beijing's strategy to change the discourse on Tibet in Beijing's favor. And worse, that the use of this terminology over time changes the way they themselves perceive the nature of the Tibetan conflict. Um, and and so our book is uh, is intended as a wake-up call in that respect.
2: I think what you say is, is very uh, interesting as we, we see the way the PRC uses language and projects its um, core interests, so to speak, Tibet as a core interest, um, to Taiwan and that kind of thing. And they're, they're managing yes. to, that's part of this whole picture that you're that you're painting um wh- what is it that governments are doing uh by either willingly or unwittingly really by you know in, in their attempt to uh, for example satisfy tibet that you know, the, you know that the united states or other countries don't have any designs on tibet or by acquiescing on this point of sovereignty or or even on history itself can you sort of shed light on what governments are doing, why what they're doing is wrong. Um, I know you make a case for how this is essentially, they're abdicating their own international legal responsibilities in that respect. If you were advising um, a government um, to stop doing what it's doing, what would you tell them they're doing wrong and what would you tell them to do?
0: Good question. Um, As part of Beijing's strategy to convince the world uh, that it possesses (coughs) sovereignty over Tibet, It pressures and coerces governments, also actually corporations and and even um, organizations like museums around the world, to refer to Tibet as part of China and to use the language that conveys that. And as you say, uh, using concepts of, of Tibet being a core interest of China, which essentially means that China determines uh how you should speak about and behave in relation to its core interests um as a prerequisite in a sense to friendly bilateral relations that is a, that is a, a uh, and an, has proven to be an effective uh means of of uh pressure on states to behave according to how Beijing wants them to 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 behave Beijing consistently uses carefully selected vocabulary when talking about Tibetan Tibetans and insists we all use it. Um, And this is intended to foster international acceptance of China's rule of Tibet and the sense that its incorporation in Tibet is not just lawful, but also irreversible. Let me just illustrate uh, how this works with the term minority. Um, as you know, Beijing refers to Tibetans as one of its minorities or as an ethnic minority or ethnic group. Many people, including journalists, government officials, uh, and even NGOs, follow suit. Yet this is, a, uh, this is a false representation of Tibetans. Firstly, Tibetans are the majority in their own country and not someone else's ethnic minority. Secondly, Tibetans squarely qualify as a people under international law, a qualification that comes with with robust set of rights. The rights accorded to a minority or an ethnic minority um, are substantially less than those accorded to a people. And so by consistently calling Tibetans an ethnic minority and pushing others to do so as well, Beijing aims to affect our perception of the status and rights of the Tibetans under international law. Uh, Peoples, for example, have collective rights under international law, which minorities do not. Most importantly, peoples have the right to self-determination. This right, as you know, is is enshrined in the UN Charter um, in the first article of both International Human Rights Covenants uh, so it has become customary international law, which means it's binding on all governments, on all states. And the realization of a people's right to self-determination has become a matter of international concern and responsibility. And so it generates obligations for our governments. So when Beijing insists on calling Tibetans one China's ethnic minorities, it's not not the majority in China. Beijing's vocabulary is deliberate to change our perception of the rights of the Tibetans, our perception of China's entitlement to Tibet, and our perception of the extent to which the situation inside Tibet is within or outside uh, the purview, the responsibility uh, of the international community. And such a change in perception has an enormous impact on whether and how governments frame and address the Sino-Tibetan conflict. Whether a government conceives of Tibet as an occupied country, and Tibetans as a people with the right to self-determination versus whether it considers Tibetans as an ethnic minority that have always been part of China, makes a huge difference. Uh, the, the, The first, the former signals that there is an international conflict in need of resolution. The latter signals that Tibet is China's internal affair, and outside the international community's purview. The former signals that Tibetans have rights that China must respect, the latter signals that Tibetans demands are in fact requests for special favors from China, which Beijing is essentially free to ignore. So today the PRC is largely succeeding in getting governments, journalists, and even scholars around the world now to use its vocabulary and this Trickles down to the general public, not least because governments use it, and that gets broadcast through the media. Uh, And this this is happening now. This is the current situation. And as a result, our collective perception of the nature of the Sino-Tibetan conflict changes, and inaction on the inaction on the political front uh, is the result of this. So, so China has essentially where it wants us in the corner where it wants us. I'm sorry for for
2: No, I'm I'm glad long you answer. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm I'm very glad you went into it in that detail because it 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 really is important to understanding um again whether wittingly or unwittingly uh governments or uh, you know particularly governments who have you know in theory are attempting to advocate for the Tibetans in some way um are aware of the, of the role they're playing by accepting this language by Seeding principles that you've described. Um, so maybe in that, re- you might address that a little bit in as we sort of discuss the 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 possibility of a of a resolution of the conflict. Um, uh, you know, you, your your work is intended to, uh, I think, restore a balance or restore reality, or restore truth and history, so that there can be progress on on some kind of resolution. Um, and I wonder if. Um, you know, you could talk about the prospects for such a resolution, but also, you know, what would have to happen were certain countries or, you know, those who purport to be supportive of, of the Tibetans uh, to actually press for that? Are they, is, have they kind of uh, shot themselves in the foot or tied one hand behind their back? What would they have to do in order to, to facilitate that? And what are the, and what are, if that weren't to happen or were to happen, what would be the prospects for some future kind of uh, movement on the resolution question?
0: Prospects for, for, uh, for negotiations are to a large extent dependent or affected by Beijing's perceived need to negotiate. And right now, as far as we can see, there, there is no perceived need to negotiate. And that is, and this goes back to to your earlier question actually, there, Beijing does not feel the need to negotiate because our governments are giving Beijing what it wants by complying with China's terms on Tibet. Mm -hmm. In other words, our governments are not questioning Beijing's legitimacy to rule Tibet. In fact, they're willing to state that they consider that Tibet is part of China, some of them uh, repeatedly, even though international law actually, and this I think is important to know, international law prohibits governments from recognizing that Tibet's part of China because Tibet was invaded Contrary, it was invaded in violation of one of the most fundamental norms of international law. So, because governments because governments do not challenge China's right to rule Tibet, there's very little incentive to negotiate with Tibetans, but political systems by the needs of Tibetans. Um, let me explain a little bit more. The the legitimacy to rule Tibet lies with the Tibetans. And this is the Tibetans' most important leverage in any negotiations. In a situation of power asymmetry, as is the case with Tibet and China, this leverage is dependent on it being upheld by the international community. And this is fundamental to the functioning, actually, of our international legal order. And currently, the Tibetan leverage is being undermined by our governments and they're doing so in breach of international law. Every statement a government makes to the effect that it considers Tibet a part of China, or that implies that the PRC's rule of Tibet is legitimate, or that endorses China's claim to sovereignty over Tibet, is another nail effectively in the coffin of a negotiated solution. So long as the international community endorses China's claim to Tibet, I mentioned as governments repeatedly do today, Beijing doesn't have an incentive to negotiate with the Tibetans. With with those pronouncements by our governments, um, they are in fact selling out the Tibetans' rights and with them, the chances of negotiated solution. You know, as you mentioned, the stated policy of a number of governments and that includes European ones, the European Union itself, the U.S. and Canada, is that they support negotiations between Beijing and the Tibetans to restore their com- to, to, to resolve their conflict through dialogue and negotiations. But the actions of those same governments undermine this policy, and, and we also don't address that. The fact that their actions are illegal, we also don't protest against. And so we don't really hold our governments accountable. And as a result, our governments are are mostly paying lip service to the ideal of a resolution of a Sino-Tibetan conflict through negotiations. Um, And uh, there seems to be a general feeling, uh, even among NGOs engaged in the issue, that this is enough, that realistically, much more can't be expected of, of our government. And that's where we are today. And yet, the continued occupation of Tibet, which is happening on our watch, and the fact that governments look the other way and use language that exonerates China so as not to upset it, makes them, makes governments, accessories after the fact. And I know this is a serious accusation. An accessory after the fact, as you know, is someone who assists a person who's committed a crime after the person's committed it uh, with the intent to help the person avoid punishment. And our governments do that. Uh, They intentionally help the PRC get away with the annexation, with the invasion annexation of a neighboring country. And we let them do that. So, that really reduces the, the chances um, of the parties coming to a negotiated uh, solution.
2: I wonder if you could shed a little light on, on the uh, formal Tibetan position, um, uh, seeking uh, autonomy, genuine autonomy under Chinese rule. Um, how then, if, if that's the ultimate goal, um, how should we understand, as you know, supporters of that, what our role should be? What What is it that? Um, how can How can our uh, the changes that you're suggesting that we make? How can those really help, given what His Holiness's objective is?
0: Well, I yes, I, I can see how it can be confusing. Also, the fact that uh, I'm I've been talking about the importance of not um recognising that uh recognising Tibet as part of China or legitimising or giving the impression of legitimising the Chinese invasion of Tibet on the one hand and what we hear from the Central Tibetan administration and from his Holiness, which is we're seeking uh autonomy, we're not seeking um to separate from China. by saying something about the middle way approach itself and then address how that is being undermined by, by these statements by governments and, uh, and others that I've just mentioned. So, so the middle way approach, uh, which is the name given to, as you know, to the, um, uh, uh, to the Tibetan policy in terms of uh, how to resolve the Tibetan issue, is, is firmly rooted in the Tibetan position that Tibet is an illegally occupied country and that the PRC does not have the right to rule Tibet. And at the same time, it is rooted in a commitment to resolve the conflict nonviolently through dialogue and negotiations. Uh, It also includes the willingness to seek a mutually beneficial solution to the Sino-Tibetan conflict that does not require the restoration of Tibet's independence, and that can be implemented through genuine autonomy within the framework of the PRC and its constitution. Quite a mouthful, but that is kind of, I think, comprehensively describes the middle way approach. Uh, now the middle way approach does not Im- imply that the CTA accepts Tibet as part of China today. Very much to the contrary. It means that if a satisfactory solution mm. involving a robust and genuine autonomy is reached through negotiations, then the CTA will, as part of such a package, accept that Tibet will henceforth be part of the PRC and will not seek separation from it. In other words, the middle way approach holds the promise for the PRC that Tibet can lawfully become part of China and be recognized as such by Tibetans, but only in return for a genuine and robust autonomy which, as you know, so far, the Chinese have not been willing to discuss. So the desired outcome of the middle way approach, which is genuine autonomy for the whole Tibetan people, is a compromise. It's somewhere in the middle between the restoration of independence on the one end of the spectrum and integration and assimilation into China on the other end of the spectrum. That a, a confusing element is that this proposed compromise somewhere in the middle is also the Tibetans' bottom line. So, the Tibetans, and in particular the Dalai Lama, have taken an unconventional uh, stance in stating their bottom line as the negotiation objectives. Mm-hmm. And that's confusing. I and mean, yeah. we're used to negotiating parties arriving somewhere in the middle after. A and take right. process that, for both sides, started with much more assertive opening demands. In the case of Tibetans, their opening demand is the compromise in the middle they are envisioning, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's confusing.
2: Yeah. Um, well, we're getting we're getting towards the end of the our portion of the discussion, and soon we'll um, open it up for questions that Tencho will moderate. But I just wanted to ask you, you know, to give you a chance as we reach that point. Uh, to offer you know you've given some very specific criticisms of uh, not only what China's done obviously how the international community has responded to that and um, I wondered if you have any suggestions going forward what would what recommendations would you make uh, uh, based on on all of this historical research and your uh, assertions about uh, Tibet's status and about what China's been doing uh, so effectively since it invaded and occupied tibet
0: yes and and we haven't talked about the history and which is a uh, a substantial part of of the book although the book uh deals with the rights of tibetans and and with self-determination and with policy choices for governments and so forth as well um because i think that's that's uh, uh talking about the history in a conversation like this uh, you know it's a complex matter and it's it's uh, best left for people to read uh in the book um, mm-hmm. the uh, so recommendations in terms of what what people uh, what governments imp- primarily but also others uh including civil society can do um well the the, the first and perhaps most simple thing is to call the sino- tibetan conflict and tibet what they are in other words to use the language and and to press governments to use the language that reflects the truth about the international legal status of Tibet and the Tibetans, and not to use language that perpetrates and solidifies the false representation of Tibet and the Tibetans. So Tibet is an occupied country, we should say so. Sino-Tibetan conflict is an international conflict, we should say so. And the Tibetans are an occupied people, not a minority. Uh, That's one. Um, and, and Tibetan China policy should, uh, I feel be premised on the treatment of the Sino Tibetan conflict as a matter of international concern, uh, and not as China's internal affair. Um, and this is, in fact, as, as I mentioned, a legal obligation of our governments. Um, Tibetan China policy should incentivize China's leaders to come to the table and should uh, center on denying China the benefits of its occupation of Tibet, including denying the recognition of its claim to sovereignty over Tibet, until the conflict is satisfactorily resolved. This is kind of a basic, uh, basic approach to, to incentivizing negotiations. Second recommendation would be to urge governments not to raise the Tibetan human rights concerns without also addressing the underlying conflict in its political security and international dimensions. They need to go hand in hand. Um, The Sino-Tibetan conflict is political. Uh, China's occupation is strategic and the human rights violations are the symptoms, the inevitable consequences of Chinese Communist Party pursuit of full control of Tibet. Ritualistically addressing symptoms, human rights in this case, without tackling the cause is not only, I think, a morally unacceptable policy choice, but it gives away that governments are not really serious even about the human rights of the Tibetans. Mm -hmm. We all know Tibetans' rights have been systematically and grossly violated for 70 years, despite international condemnation. China's leaders are just no longer Mm -hmm. concerned about this kind of criticism and and not motivated to act on it. So we need to uh, not address human rights only on their own without also addressing the political conflict. And and then uh, we should urge governments to be mindful not to give to China what is not theirs to give. In other words, ruling out independence, for example, or making other concessions by governments regarding rights that belong to Tibetans. Those kinds of concessions are the exclusive prerogative of Tibetans. For any country to make such concessions not only takes away the leverage Tibetans may have with China, so reducing the chances of reaching a negotiated solution, but violates international law as well. And in the same way, not to accept or receive or purchase what is not China's to give. so. It makes common sense, but Tibet's natural resources belong to the Tibetans, not to China, and governments or states are prohibited from acquiring those resources or goods made by those without the prior permission of the Tibetan people. This, This was recently again confirmed in a case in the European Court regarding Western Sahara. And finally, I think we have to hold our own governments and corporations and civil society actors too accountable. For their behavior towards Tibet and China on all the points we've talked about today um, and I think that is from from you know all of us in civil society I think that is perhaps the strongest message I'd like to convey
2: well thank you very very much I think it's um uh, a lot to keep talking about and I look forward to getting our uh, audience's questions and I know Tencho has been gathering them uh, so I'd like to ask her if she'd like to step in now and moderate this portion.
1: Thanks so much, Michael.
0: Thank you, Ellen.
1: Thank you, Ellen, and thank you, Michael. Um, We uh, seem to have lost your uh, visual, but we can still hear you perfectly. So um, that's what counts. Um, I have a couple of questions here. I first have uh, a question from a viewer from the Netherlands. Um, Uyghur Sherp he writes thank you so much for writing this book um, and and for this talk and he says how are we going to bring this information into international politics and into the general media
0: I think one of the ways of doing it is by paying attention to uh, how Tibet is referred to uh, what governments and others say, what NGOs say, and uh, making an effort to correct them. Making an effort to correct them with, substantiated with, with uh, good arguments and evidence. I mean, to, to give an example of the kind of statement that to me is entirely unacceptable for a government to make. Let me just use the example of the Danish government's statement in December 2009 after, uh, after China protested because the Danish foreign minister met with his own Dalai Lama. The statement, and I'll uh, have it here, I'll just read it. Denmark is fully aware of the importance and sensitivity of Tibet related issues and attaches great importance to the view of the Chinese government on these issues. Denmark takes very seriously the Chinese opposition to meetings between members of the Danish government and the Dalai Lama. It has duly noted Chinese views that such meetings are against the core interests of China, and it will handle such issues prudently. In this regard, and this is, I think, the the, the, the key and really um, the statement that we should hold Denmark and similar uh, and governments that do similar statements elsewhere to account. In this regard, uh, the statement says Denmark reaffirms its one-China policy and its unchanged position that Tibet is an integral part of China. Denmark recognizes China's sovereignty over Tibet and accordingly opposes the independence of Tibet. So this is this is not just a uh, an attempt to smooth over a diplomatic uh, problem. It is a uh, a statement that lays on thickly and in three different ways that it reaffirms that Tibet is part of China. And not only that, but that Tibetans should not have independence. Who is Denmark to determine that Tibetans may or may not have independence? This is the kind of concession that I was talking about that governments should not be making and under international law are not allowed to make. Um, and it really disadvantages Tibetans' Uh, if they reach the point where they're even negotiating with China, because it it, uh, it shifts the post away from the Tibetan's rights to the Chinese. You start from a position where you really have very little room to to, to negotiate at all. Um, when we hear or see these kinds of statements, and whether they're made by governments or or organizations or the press, I think um, we have a responsibility to take the trouble to to respond, to call them to task, uh, and use historical, international, legal, or any other uh, moral arguments to, to do that.
1: Very strong case there, uh, Michael. The next question I have is uh, from a familiar name to all of us, from Leslie. She says, what would Beijing... What would give Beijing a need to negotiate? What would make them willing to negotiate? I know you, Michaela, you worked closely with our late Chairman Lodi, who led the rounds of negotiation with the Chinese. Um, and then since 2010, there have been none. So the, how would you answer this question?
0: Uh, I think uh, these days with this this regime in Beijing, Um, the impression I get is that they're not in the mood to negotiate about anything with anyone. And so I don't see great prospects for negotiations with this regime, with the current leadership in place. That doesn't mean that that uh, can't change. It also doesn't mean that with a a, uh, follow-up regime uh, or different leaders, that would not be possible. Uh, and things do change so that's the only certainty we have and we have to be prepared to to act on it and i think this is this is an important theme uh that i've been trying to convey in in different places and is also the theme in the book is that what china needs most from the tibetans in fact perhaps the only thing it needs from the tibetans and uh is uh legitimacy the legitimization of China's rule over Tibet or its claim to rule Tibet. Um, And it's really only the Tibetans that can give China this. So this is what needs to be highlighted. This is what's going to make China want to negotiate with Tibetans. Um, And this is why the more governments in particular but also the general public but particularly this is why the more governments that seem to or imply that china has legitimacy to rule tibet and make statements to that effect the more that happens the less china has any incentive to talk to tibetans because it thinks it's getting this at least a semblance of legitimacy from the international community as well so it doesn't need to go to his holiness, the Dalai Lama, or to uh, other Tibetans. It doesn't need to change its policies in Tibet. It doesn't really care that there's complaints about human rights. I mean, if it did, it really would change things in, in Xinjiang as well, in East Turkestan, but it doesn't. The, only, the, Achilles P, the Achilles heels for China is the question of legitimacy and they are very aware of it which is why they're insisting so much that his holiness has to accept has to publicly state that tibet has been a part of china that is the only argument they have used to um substantiate their claim that they have legitimacy to rule tibet that tibet is part of china is only a historical argument they have never produced any other argument to justify their rule of tibet and so that is what cannot be handed to them without negotiating, without uh, sub- substantive compromise by them. In other words, without them giving something in return to the Tibetans. And the Tibetans have said that they would be satisfied with genuine, real autonomy um, in exchange for accepting China's legitimate right to be to exercise sovereignty over. Tibet in some in some way uh, that is acceptable. So uh, yes, I think withholding recognition withholding any implications of legitimacy for China, the best and perhaps the only way to get China to negotiate.
1: Uh, Another question from uh, one of our Facebook viewers, Andrea Rosenfeld, says, um, how much of various stances of governments do we believe are due to fear of threatening China?
0: I think most. I think mostly, uh, in other words, I don't think it is a conviction when governments make these statements that they really believe that Tibet is an integral part of China or that it was historically part of China or anything like that. Uh, although I think many officials are confused about it. I've talked to a number of them that no, no longer are as clear on this as they used to be 20 years ago. To, um,
1: Which means that
0: propaganda is. is having... It. But uh, I think there's China has been extremely successful in um, in putting governments on the defensive making them feel that if they step out of line when it comes to talking about Tibet, and today also about Uyghurs, and today also about Hong Kong, also about Taiwan, I mean, the list is growing. Um, Soon it'll be Mongolia, soon it'll be uh, the South China Sea will be added to all these things that it has already uh, identified as core interests. Um, That if you step out of line, that something really bad will happen to you. And one of the things that is really bad that's gonna happen to you is that China is gonna be very angry. I have spoken to foreign ministry officials that give me as a simple reason for not raising a particular issue on Tibet, any issue on Tibet, is no, but the Chinese get really angry. They say, of course they get really angry. That's part of the strategy. You just in, They just intimidate you not to talk about certain subjects and you go along with it, which is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. So yes, China has been very successful at instilling fear that bad things happen, including that a diplomat gets angry if you um, raise issues that they're not happy with when it comes to Tibet. And, uh, and that, I think, is the main motivation for people not to uh, do the right thing.
1: Um, coming over to India, we have a Facebook question from Khenjok Pandel. Uh, he says, what role India can play in resolving Tibet issue?
0: India, of course, is, is, uh, is key. India is uh, an essential player in, in uh, resolving the issue or in helping to resolve the issue, or in helping to bring sufficient pressure to resolve the issue. And of course, India has um, an enormous, it's enormously important for India. It's, uh, as you know, China is uh, threatening India's territory. um, Now more than ever, I mean, in the past uh, couple of years, there've been numerous incidents on the border. Uh, China has been, uh, making more assertive its claims to uh, what it calls Southern Tibet, which is um, Arunachal Pradesh, a huge area uh, in Northeast uh, India, but also in Northwest India. Um, and so, yes, uh, India really feels the heat of China's presence in Tibet more than, more than anyone else, um, except perhaps Bhutan and Nepal feel it as well, that they have... They, they manage their relations, uh, in a way that, uh, um, that they consider right. Um, so yes, India, India, uh, is essential. Uh, and I think that for India, the same goes as for other governments, that speaking the truth, um, is probably its own best defense, its own best, um, shield from aggression from China. Uh, Again, I am sure that China has instilled fear among some in India that if it gets out of line uh, on Tibet, that really bad things are going to happen. Uh, But in the long term, the only way that India can, um, can protect itself is by speaking the truth. I mean, let's take a very clear example. China claims, as I mentioned, uh, Arunachal Pradesh. Um, It does not recognize the, and it does so because it doesn't recognize the border that was agreed to in a treaty between Tibet and Britain um, in 1914. That is the, the border that is internationally agreed. If India doesn't insist on the truth that Tibet was independent before China's invasion, then it has no leg to stand on in defending this border as being uh, the little international border because uh, the Tibetan ceded territory as part of that uh, agreement with Britain. Um, And if that uh, treaty was invalid because as China claims, Tibet was not independent at the time, then India cannot really defend its claim to uh, a part of that territory so for india it is extremely important that it uh, insists that tibet was independent at that time which it was india recognized that tibet was independent uh uh, as soon as as india itself became independent in 1947 it sent an official note from the government to the government of, of tibet In which it was very clear that it was treating Tibet as an independent country with treaty relations. That it it said it hoped uh, uh, Tibet would respect its treaty relations with India, Um, and yet now India, in a sense, has not uh, respected its treaty relations with Tibet by accepting at some point that uh, that Tibet uh, had become part of the PRC. So I think India has to carefully um course correct its position on tibet um and that perhaps will be a stronger signal than than anything else that china uh, needs to negotiate with the tibetans if it wishes to to retain uh sovereignty uh claims over tibet that that anybody's going to believe if india no longer stands as it does now on the position that tibet's part of china the rest of the world Will start moving away from that position as well. Um, the rest of the world has been looking to India and India's position uh, right from the beginning, right from when Tibet was invaded, and has kind of followed India's lead. So I think India is is crucial, is critical here. But of course, India is also looking to other countries for support to to enable it to make any uh, any assertive take any assertive position. So from that point of view, it's extremely important that countries like the United States, like uh, the European Union countries, um, Japan, Australia, uh, and uh, especially countries in in Asia, um, uh, that they uh, um, modify their positions to an extent that it it enables India to take a more... uh, truthful and assertive position.
1: Thank you for that, Micah. We have a number of uh, questions still, but we don't have a lot of time. I'm going to, I have two questions here and I'm going to ask if you might uh, address them both um, briefly. Um, So we have uh, from Facebook, uh, Sebastian Richter. Um, He says, um, good evening. And my perhaps somewhat naive question to the guests. So he says, do you have an opinion about the political reasons for the occupation of Tibet? I suspect call for help is the propaganda version. So that is uh, um, the first question. And the Sorry, second, I
0: didn't completely get that question.
1: So he says he wants to know about the political reasons for the occupation of Tibet. He's heard about the call for the um, the you know, with the Chinese uh, liberation of Tibet version. So he his um i suspect uh, that's his question um but more gen- for a uh, more general question and then um from uh, louisa grave we have another question it says michael did your research look into current chinese government uh, whether the current chinese government is reliant on the always part of china since ancient times claim in the same way for taiwan and east Turkestan or whether there are differences so it's a more complicated question there
0: the reason for the occupation or the, the political reasons for the occupation of tibet tibet occupies a very strategic place in uh, in asia in the center of asia in the heart of asia um inner asia or central asia these these terms are kind of used sometimes interchangeably but that the if you like the center of of asia or eurasia is strategically important for all the big powers there it's important for india it's important for China and it's important for Russia. And so that is part of the reason why throughout history, they have been tested been the subject of, of competition. Um, so one very important reason, I think, for uh, China to have invaded Tibet was strategic. China would not today be a, um, uh, would not have access to South Asia. Um, it would only be an East Asian power, essentially, if it was not in Tibet. And so I think that is that's an essential reason for it. I mean, just look at also how um how important it has been for it in relations to um to Nepal today, uh in its relations with Bangladesh in the past. Uh, now with Pakistan, all of that Tibet has a central role to play because, as you know, China um, uh, has a, a very strong military presence in Tibet that kind of dominates this area. So strategic is is very important. I think natural resources has always been part of the equation, uh, even though the PRC did not develop that fast. In the beginning, and that is largely because there was no infrastructure and it's taken them a long time to build the infrastructure that they need to, to truly exploit Tibet's natural resources. But um, that is an important part of the equation. An additional reason, which has to do with the, uh, in a sense, the psychology of Chinese imperial dynastic thinking, which is that every new dynasty has to Prove its legitimacy by expanding the empire, by expanding the territory, by expanding the sovereignty, uh, the reach. And uh, Tibet was, I think, part of that um, process by Mao Zedong. And letting it go would be unacceptable for the same reason, because losing a part of territory under the same psychological thinking. Is a signal of the beginning of the loss of legitimacy to rule China, not just to rule Tibet, but to rule China. So, um, and you, you can see that each new leader, even within the communist system, has tried to expand their sovereignty in some way, whether it is by expanding the sovereignty to Hong Kong or uh, to some in some other way. So, um, so that's that is, I think, an- another reason for. Uh, the invasion. The claim that Tibet was liberated from imperialism or from imperialist forces is completely nonsense. I mean, there were just no imperialist forces in Tibet. Yes, Tibet had relations with Britain, um, uh, but that doesn't make it Tibet a colony of Britain and it wasn't a colony of Britain. And there, were, there was no military presence of the British. There was simply a diplomatic representative which which one has in every country. So that that is a completely bogus uh, claim by China, but one which they have broadcast widely, and which I think uh, even at the time when they invaded Tibet, a number of people suspected might have been uh, there might have been some truth to it. Uh, but I think certainly uh, Chinese in China, Chinese population in China, many of them believe that, um, and uh, so. Uh, In terms of the the comparisons with Taiwan, uh, East Turkestan, historically, um, uh, there are differences, and the differences are are quite major and quite important. Um, uh, And one might add uh, uh, Mongolia as well, both, both independent Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. The history of all of these regions in relation to um, Eastern empires or inner Asian empires uh, in the past have been different. Um, At the same time, there are similarities. The the main similarity, I think, between Tibet and East Turkestan or Xinjiang, as people uh, tend to call it because that's the name that region, um, are being ruled with a almost typical uh, colonialist regime. Both of them are today, in effect, colonies of China. And it really angers me in a way that, you know, we have, um, the world has made such a big effort to ensure the decolonization of all former colonies in the past century. Uh, and I think did a, did a good job of that. Um, I think that is one of the one of the things that we can be proud of and that we can be proud the UN helped to achieve. And yet we allow the continuation, or in fact a, uh, a new creation of colonies in the middle of last century, uh, and we allow that to happen without uh, calling China to task. But if you really look at the criteria of colonialism, Uh, all of them uh, apply to Tibet and to East Turkestan. Uh, Of course, Taiwan not, because Taiwan is independent, except that China doesn't doesn't accept that and that much of the world doesn't recognize it uh, as independent. But the other thing that they all have in common is the historical argumentation from the PRC side. From the PRC side, all the argumentation for all three of these and for the South China Sea Has been uh, and is that because these regions had uh, a a particular relationship with um, empires that ruled China, therefore they are or they were and should be today part of China. In other words, they project um, today's borders of the PRC as they have established them into the past, into history, and reinterpret history in a misleading way to, to show that these, all these territories have always been part of China, have, have somehow simply on the basis that they had some relationship, not even with China, but with rulers or empires that ruled China. With the Mongols, for example, Tibetans had very close relationship with the Mongols and was in fact, Tibet was part of the Mongol Empire, just as you know, Eastern Europe and, and uh, Persia and all of Central Asia and China were all part of the, the Mongol Empire. With the Qing Empire of the Manchus, we can say the same. The Tibetans had a close relationship with the Manchus, but Tibetans did not have a close relationship with China. It was not part of the Ming, which was the Chinese empire. It was not part of China when the Manchu Qing ruled China. The Manchus, very clearly the emperors, made a very clear distinction between their relations with Tibet and their rule of China, which they occupied. Um, And so the same kind of argument is being used by uh, by China for East Turkestan and is being used uh, about Taiwan. And all of them really amount to this. Uh, think in terms of the, the, the Manchu dynasty or the Manchu empire uh, of the Qing and the Mongol empire of uh, uh, Genghis Khan and his successes. It would be as if India were to claim today that because it was the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, and China was undoubtedly the jewel in the crown of the, the manchu Qing Empire, but because it is a jewel in the crown of the British Empire, India uh, has sovereignty today over Burma, over Nepal, over the United States, Canada, Australia. I mean, if you see it that way, it is completely absurd. but yes, this arguments being used
1: Thank you, Michael. You gave us a lot of uh, lot in this one hour, and of course there's a lot more. Um, we have in three of uh, Michael's book, um, we have also sacred uh, mandates and also the original. Status of Tibet, uh, which uh, we all uh, carry on our bookshelves and go to very often. Um, Thank you, Michael, for all your research, all your work. Ellen, thank you for hosting. Ellen, would you like any uh, last comments, remarks? No, no, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Okay, thank Thank you. you Thank
0: you so much. It's it's really been a pleasure. And and I'm sorry that the video, uh, uh, it still has a little thing on my screen that says reconnecting video, but it's never managed to do that. Uh, but it's been a pleasure talking with Alan. you and with Ellen, uh, and I uh, I hope that it's been of some some benefit.
1: Very much. And then uh, for our viewers, um, uh, we are uh, we'll be. We hope to have Michael's books on our web store, so please uh, keep a watch uh, for that. Or, And we have some coffees here also if you want to contact us uh, directly, um, uh, we'll let you know. Um, so with that, uh, we end uh, today's uh, Tibet talk. Thank you everyone uh, for tuning in. Um, and we'll be back uh, next month with another episode. Uh, we'll be featuring a conversation with the authors of Sarah Monastery, another, uh, an incredible book about one of the great uh, monastic universities of Tibet, scrupulously researched uh, from its founding in the early 14th century to its current state. We'll be joined by um, Professor Jose Cabazon and Gien Pema Dojila. Uh, the co-authors of this book, who were themselves former um, Sarah monks. so um, You will learn more about it at safetibet.org slash live. Again, thank you for joining us. And until next time, as my co-host Ashwin Verghese will say, stay safe, stay well, stay active. Thank you. Tuk We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks.
0: Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at SaveTibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time
1: on Tibet Talks.